Greetings, St. Croix Valley and Points Beyond. It's Friday, November 5th, and River Radio is ready to rock. Coming to you from our studios in beautiful Midtown Marina in St. Croix, this is River Radio. I'm Jim Maher. And I'm Gail Knutson. Much thanks to our technical director, Quaslove, Matt Quast. Our thanks as well to Elaine Larson, who updates our show page on the Marine Library website, to Laura Lee DiLorenzo, who handles publicity, and of course to Chan Poling in the suburbs for our opening music. The program is produced by Jim and Gail and presented by the Marine Community Library, which is located on the traditional, ancestral, and contemporary homelands of Dakota and Anishinaabe peoples. Today on the show, we'll be talking with Kate Brauman, Associate Director of the Global Water Security Center at the University of Alabama, and Brent Peterson, Executive Director of the Washington County Historical Society. We do live stream the show here on Zoom and on Facebook Live. Otherwise, all of our shows are available wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And be sure to follow our podcast um, if you, so you get them regularly when they, when they appear. Um, well, we want to follow up on uh, our last show. We were talking to the chair of the Stillwater School Board, Bev Petrie, about the upcoming levy election, which was this past Tuesday. And district-wide, both of those levies passed. The first one was basically more or less a continuation of an existing levy, which would help provide extra funding to the schools uh, for things like uh, teacher salaries and other, other items. And that passed by a 56 to 44% margin, so pretty comfortably. There was a second question about uh, funding technology upgrades on a 10-year schedule. And that was a more narrow uh, result, but it also passed by a 52 to 48% margin. But Gail, kind of in line with our uh, election night coverage last year, I thought it'd be kind of interesting if you told us about how uh, those results worked in our local communities here. Yeah, that's always kind of interesting to hear. And Maureen, the first ballot question won handily 57% to 43%, but the second question lost by a 4% margin. And in May Township, uh, where part of the township is covered by the Stillwater School District, the first ballot question that won handily district-wide was defeated by a 58% to 42% margin. And the second ballot question lost even more decisively in May Township, 64% to 36%. Yeah, pretty interesting. So um, that's the results of that levy. Another follow-up, again, you recall our first show of the season we had on Amy Hagstrom-Miller talking about the uh, Texas Supreme Court abortion case, and that was in front of the court this past week. Uh, Pretty interesting. Obviously, you're just trying to read the tea leaves, but from what the tea leaves were saying based on how justices were framing questions, it appeared that that Texas law may run into some problems in the Supreme Court. So, We'll see how that turns out. Uh, last night, we had our third our third of the season Marine Documentary Night, Gail, and uh, a pretty powerful film from Cy Dotson. 
Yes, I um, has been here with us before, but he came out with his um, short documentary called Say His Name about the five days following the George Floyd murder, which happened very close to his neighborhood. So he got his camera out and um, and went out and captured some phenomenal footage. So we all talked about that last night. Um, after his, he had a, did a Q&A, which was great. And then next month, of course, we have December 2nd, we'll have Jesse Raisler out. And Jesse was um, the first filmmaker we had out seven seasons ago for our Marine Documentary Night. He's coming out with his latest um, documentary called Breaking Trail. It's about Emily Ford, the first woman and first woman of color to um, walk the 1200 mile Ice Age Trail um, across Wisconsin um, in the wintertime. So and she did it with her borrowed dog, Diggins. And we'll find out how things have ended up with Diggins. Okay. Stay tuned. Uh, and hey, it wouldn't be a radio show if we didn't say, don't forget to move your clocks back on Saturday night, November 6th. Um, right. We have to, yeah, we will uh, lose an hour of daylight at the end of the day, starting Sunday. So here we go. Uh, Gail, our first poll question of the morning. Yeah, we've got a water question here. Um, and it, it is, what is your primary source of drinking water in your home? So we have five choices here. Straight up from the tap, using an installed water filtration system, using a store-bought water filter system, bottled water, and then we always throw in other because there might be something we didn't think about. Okay. And uh, time to move on to our first guest of the morning. And uh, we think an appropriate topic for River Radio, and that is water. And with us is uh, Kate Brauman. She recently left the University of Minnesota Global Water Initiative to become Associate Director of the Global Water Security Center at the University of Alabama. She also previously worked a while back at the Natural Resources Defense Council. She has a BA in Science and Religion from Columbia University and a PhD from Stanford. Kate has established herself as a leading voice on issues related to water usage and water scarcity. With water being such a big topic of discussion in our area, we thought it'd be great to get a global perspective on this issue. So Kate, welcome to River Radio. It is great to be here. I'm so glad I have the chance to talk with you. Well, we're, we're glad to have you. And I decided to pursue you as a guest of the program after I heard you on a BBC radio program titled, Are We Running Out of Water? So let's start with that. What's your answer to that question? No, no, we are not. Um, okay. I think I was a little bit of the iconoclast guest on that because the first couple who came through really were pushing the water scarcity edge. But I'm going to say no on this one. Okay, and, and let's talk a little more about that. Why is that the key, or why why is that your stance on that, and what what is some of the evidence behind that? Well, we know in some ways a lot about water, and in other ways we don't know that much about water. I mean, if we think about the Mississippi River, about the St. Croix River, it's actually really hard to measure exactly how much water is in the river. It's not like you can you know run it through a pipe and measure it directly. And that's a problem all over the world. And so instead, what we look at is how much is it raining and really how much water is available for us to use. And so one of the things that I think people are really responding to is this feeling that a lot of the time it doesn't feel like there's enough water for us to use. But that doesn't actually mean we're running out of water. It means that water is moving around in space and time. And so 
I look at this from a very positive people-centered place that's about giving us the agency to figure out how we want to use the water that is available and use it better. And there clearly are some problem areas, you know, for instance, and we've all heard about it, but 60 Minutes ran a segment recently about the Colorado River and it's the stresses on that from the water demand. Um, so this, and obviously there are other problem spots in the world. So it sounds like this is more a matter of having the right amount of water in the right place at the right time. Absolutely. And even a place like Minnesota, you know, we had a really dry summer this year and mm -hmm. When there's less water, when there's less water in rivers, we can't always run our thermoelectric power plants as much. You need a lot of water to make energy. Um, when we have not enough rainfall, then you would need supplemental irrigation if to grow crops sometimes. And that can be a really big problem. And I'm not underestimating that. Um, but when we look at how much water is actually available in the world, that part's not changing. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, and then how about stresses from population growth? And I think of particularly areas like India or China, where that you have such large populations, uh, do they face particular water stresses that um, are difficult to answer? Absolutely. And they face water stresses for lots of different reasons um, and that probably need different kinds of solutions. So, you know, when we think about how much water a person needs, probably the first thing that all of us think about is water to drink, and that is critical, uh, but it's not actually very much. You, you know, if you bought a gallon of water from the grocery store, that's actually, you know, plenty of water for you to drink for a day. When we think about the other things that people need water for, the next big one tends to be for hygiene for cleaning. So if you're cooking in water, you're cleaning up your pots and pans afterwards, you're washing your food before you start. And also, you know, everything that's happening in the bathroom, that also takes a lot of water, but really the biggest thing that we're all using water for is the food that we eat and really the production of that food before it gets to us, before it gets to our houses. So in places where there's high population density, they don't necessarily grow huge demand for water directly with a number of people, but there's a big demand for water that's embedded in the food that they're eating. Right. And that, that was interesting. And going back to the program that you appeared on with BBC, somebody had talked about that too, one of the other guests who said that it, in, in essence, California is importing their water by virtue of all the food that they send around the country, around the world. Uh, and that, that basically, while we may look at their, the Colorado River problem as that's their problem, it's really our problem. Yeah. And I think, you know, this idea that you're embedding water and food and you're moving it around the world, that's, it's neither a good thing or a bad thing but it is something we need to keep track of. So there's lots of places that have a lot of water and it makes a lot of sense to grow crops there and export those crops and therefore functionally export that water. But in places where there's not a lot of water, then we really wanna think hard about whether growing food for export is the right thing to do. 
so are you saying then that maybe we're put, putting too much of a, we have too much of a reliance on California as the source of our uh, produce? Well, there's some pretty cool stuff happening in Minnesota trying to, to look at cold weather uh, produce gardening. Um, so I definitely think that's a show for the future. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, the thing about California is that it's um, when, when the conditions are right, and I say this as a native Californian, I should admit here, when the conditions are right, it's an amazing place to grow food. And that's why there's so much agriculture there. It's really sunny all summer, good soils, but you need that water. And it's about considering the trade-offs and using less water when there's less available in a particular year or in a particular place. And are efforts being made to, uh, to, so crops won't be so water intensive that they, that maybe they could grow effectively with less water? There are, and you can change some things that way, but you can't fix everything just by changing crops. Um, you know, some different kinds of crops need less water. And sometimes you can get a little bit less yield with a lot less water, um, but you're never gonna like really hit it out of the ballpark with the best yield ever, unless you're irrigating, unless you have a ton of water. And so I think looking at that ability to grow with a little bit of water shortage has a ton of potential. Mm. And uh, uh, the uh, counter on this is, or uh, uh, something that I think people might wonder is, if we modify crops so they wouldn't demand quite so much water, does that mean they get a label as a GMO and then all of a sudden that's, you know, that's considered a black label for them? Yeah, and it depends a lot on how, how that happens. You know, one of the things that the Green Revolution did, and, you know, Norman Borlaug, who was a University of Minnesota student, um, a big piece of that, of what he did actually was not GMO, it was traditional breeding, and it was creating crops that are smaller. And what that means is that there's the same amount of seed or corn or lettuce or whatever the thing you want to actually eat is. And there's less of all of the other stuff. There's less stock and leaves, um, or you get more wheat and less of the chaff. And that was a huge innovation. I mean, that, that changed things in a really major way. There were lots of other parts of the Green Revolution, some good and some bad, but that was a really cool change that had a big impact on how much water crops need to grow. Do you think we're on a collision course between water for what, what you mentioned before, a traditional human uses, drinking and, and bathing, versus water for agricultural uses? Or do you think we, we are finding a balance with that? Probably somewhere in the middle. Um, there, is a, there is a tension there. We see it in California. We even see it in Minnesota sometimes. Um, and it doesn't have to be a fight. And actually a lot of the places where water has become scarce where they really are facing a problem, it's forced people to come to the table and negotiate. And by and large, the outcomes have been great. That's true on the Colorado River. It's true on the Murray-Darling Basin in Australia. Um, 
it's really been impressive to see how when push comes to shove, people recognize that there's only a finite amount of water and that we have to share it. But until it gets to the point of really having to have that conversation, that's when things can, can really feel like a, a, a fight. I'm speaking with Kate Brahman, Associate Director of the Global Water Security Center at the University of Alabama. Uh, Kate, are watersheds and aquifers, do they reconstitute themselves? So, I mean, water is, new water is being generated uh, constantly? Well, it's not new. Um, you're, you're drinking <laughs> the same water that the dinosaurs were drinking. But yes, and yes and no, actually. It really depends a lot on where you are. So water, for the most part, really doesn't go away. Um, eventually it evaporates, it ends up back in the atmosphere and it rains again. So what you learned in the fourth grade, when you learned about the water cycle, it works, it's true. <laughs> um, but it's also a lot more complicated. And so for aquifers, for example, some of them, when you stop pumping or it starts raining, you really see them fill right back up again. So couple of years ago, there was a lot of concern about White Bear Lake um, in the greater Twin Cities region, and the lake levels were really dropping. People were really worried about how much water was being used from the aquifer that feeds into that lake. And then it started raining again, and it didn't rebound completely, but the lake levels really came right back up. And that's because the aquifers were being refilled. On the other hand, the Ogallala Aquifer, the Great Plains Aquifer, so underneath Nebraska and Kansas, all the way down into Texas, that's basically like, you can sort of think of it like an oil well. It's a finite amount of water that pretty much doesn't get renewed ever. And we can use it. We could use it now. We could use it later. We could not use it. But there is a finite amount of water in there that is, to all intents and purposes, not getting renewed. Yeah. And, and the Great Lakes, so you, you were talking about White Bear Lake, and the Great Lakes, it was a similar story a few years ago. Their levels were going down, and then, and then they seemed to bounce back again. Yeah, and you know, the Great Lakes are so big that we really see the impacts of climate change and how changes, big changes in where it rains, where it snows, can have an impact on lake levels. Yeah. Uh, so right now, I mean, climate change is obviously a big topic and there's the, the big meeting going on in Glasgow right now. How is climate change affecting, you know, I, I, you read more about droughts that seem to be extended. You read more about, um, other areas where torrential rains, maybe due to hurricanes are more common. Um, is that having an impact on water supplies and how water is distributed? Absolutely. So you might not be surprised to hear I'm a little biased, but I will say that climate change is water change. We have to think about how changes in climate are changing our water resources. And obviously we need to reduce changing climate, but we also need to adapt to those changes in water. So there's a couple of things that happen as the atmosphere warms, we know that it speeds up the water cycle. And so, that does a bunch of things, but part of what it does is it makes, in general, dry places drier and wet places wetter. And that's part of why we're seeing more droughts. But it also means that when it rains, it's more likely to rain really, really hard. 
And when that happens, it's harder to use that water. We have to think about different ways to capture it um, and save it for the next time because you know, having a deluge and a giant flood doesn't really help you six months later if it hasn't rained again since then. Right, right. Uh, so we're sitting here in an area of all the lakes that we have in Minnesota and Wisconsin, and of course, Lake Superior. And some people think we're sitting on a gold mine in terms of that water resource, and it could be shipped to other areas that, that are facing more water stress. Is that something that could happen and should it happen? I would argue, no, it should not happen for a bunch of reasons, but the really the biggest, most important one is that water is really heavy. Mm. So you think about going to the grocery store and if you buy that gallon of water, it, you got to lug that thing home. Right. And then you got to think about, well, how much use am I getting out of that gallon of water? And if I'm drinking it, I'm getting an awful lot of use out of it. That's important. But if I'm trying to even just water my backyard garden with water that I carried home in jugs from the grocery store, that starts to look really inefficient because moving water around like that is heavy. It takes a lot of energy. And that's true sort of globally. We move water in pipes for short distances for the most part, because what we're using the water for, you often need a lot. Um, and it just doesn't make any energy sense or economic sense to move water around that way. It makes much more sense to do something like they do in California. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for doing in Minnesota, which is let's use water that we have to grow the crops, to manufacture the widgets to make the energy. And then let's move those crops around. Let's move those widgets around. They're littler and lighter and cheaper to, to move around. And that's kind of the embedded water story. Okay. So are there any uh, specific steps that we as water consumers should take to be more diligent about how we use it? Definitely. There's a couple things that people at home can do. So one of them is just you know, being aware of how much water we're using and not using extra when we don't need to. So that means you've got a toilet that tends to run, get that fixed. If it's been raining and you don't need to water your lawn, turn the sprinklers off. Not using extra water has a big impact on total water resources and also on energy use. Um, oh, go ahead. Oh, Oh, I was going to say, so the, there's sort of three things. So that's one. Thinking about what we put into the water is really important. We haven't really talked about water quality, and I suspect we could talk about that for hours. Uh, so I won't right, go right. in depth, but I'll just say that, you know, the one thing that functionally makes water go away is when we put stuff in it that makes it unusable, whether that's chemicals or salt um, or human waste. If we can't get it back out, then we don't want to use that water. <laughs> So right. being careful about what we put in the water is really important. Um, and then the last piece is, you know, like I said, the biggest use of water that we all have is in the food we eat and to some extent in the products that we buy. And so thinking about, gee, is this a water intensive thing that I'm eating? Meat is more water intensive than fruits and vegetables, for example. Do I want to do that every day? Um, 
if I'm doing it, where was this product produced? Was it produced in a wet place or a dry place? All of those things can have a big impact. Well, Kate, this has really been fascinating. And I really want to thank you for taking the time this morning to talk to us about the issue of water. It's, it's really important. And, and uh, your insights were really, really instructive for all of us. So thanks for being here. It is a delight. As you can tell, I love talking about water. <laughs> well, that's great. And uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Sounds good. All right. Kate Brahman recently left the Global Water Initiative at the University of Minnesota and is now Associate Director of the Global Water Security Center at the University of Alabama. Gail? Okay, we got that poll question we took. What is your primary source of drinking water at home? And 47% of you said you are using an installed water filtration system. 33% straight from the tap. 13% are using a store-bought water filter system. And 7% use bottled water. And no others. So there we have it. Well, that, you know, that's pretty interesting. So a lot of filtration going on here in our land of 10,000 lakes. And uh, I really interesting discussion with Kate. Boy, there's so much more we could talk about with water, but I'm really glad we had a chance to get that in. And um, we'll, uh, I think we'll explore that issue again down the road. But now it is time for an update of local news. And here with that is our news director, Gail Knudsen. Thanks, Jim. Um, the Marine City Council is asking residents to respond to a survey included in the last newsletter asking for your input on budget priorities. These are the nice to have expenditures that might be possible after all the essential costs to operate the city are covered. Please return um, that survey no later than Monday, November 8th. And note that the City Council's normal second Thursday of the month meeting is moved to Wednesday of next week due to Veterans Day. That means the council meeting is on November 10th. If you like chamber music, there are several concerts coming up at the Marine Village Hall, part of what is known as the Marine Candlelight Series. The first concert on November 14th is already sold out, but tickets remain for concerts on December 12th and January 9th. Get, get uh, details online at marinecandlelightseries.org. You'll find the link on our show page. This is the weekend of the Grandma's Attic Bazaar and Bake Sale at Christ Lutheran Church. It takes place November 6th and 7th. Check out the church website for details. The church is also remembering All Saints Day on Sunday, November 7th at Oakland Cemetery. Following a short remembrance, candles will be placed on um, the graves in the cemetery and all are welcome to join. A note that the Marine General Store is everything for your Thanksgiving needs from fresh produce to stuffing. Make sure to sign up for your turkey and bakery goods at the store's front counter by November 19th. The store also has a new deli salad case. Check that out. As well as new shirts, sweatshirts, hats, and some great jigsaw puzzles. They all make great gifts this time of year. The Marine Village School could use your help this Saturday, November 6th from 9 to 11. You meet at the Marine School Forest, which is right behind the school and right in River Radio's backyard. Volunteers will be asked to help in cleaning up play areas, remove buckthorn, and do other outdoor chores. Bring wheelbarrows, steel rakes, pitchforks, shovels, brush cutters, and work gloves. If you have any questions, feel free to call or text Kathy Marker. And of course, her phone number is on our show page. 
Marine Mills Folk School has a full schedule of in-person and online traditional skills classes at the Marine School building. They are offering seasonal classes, including creating a wreath, making stenciled Christmas stockings, and making holiday-themed needle felt berries and creatures. More information is available at marinemillsfolkschool.org. A Swedish family craft class is being offered at Gamel Garden Museum on November 13th. Two sessions will be held, 10 o'clock and one o'clock. Cost is $20 per family and space is limited. Reservations are required by calling 433-5053. Gamel Garden will also be hosting its annual member appreciation sale from November 13th to the 22nd. Members will get 25% off. Non-members will get 15% off all sales. Check out their website for more info. The Scandia Marine Lions encourage anyone who is interested in becoming a member to come to their next Lions Breakfast Club meeting at the Scandia Community Center on Thursday, November 11th from, uh, at 8 a.m. Enjoy a free breakfast, learn what the Lions are doing in the community, and get membership information. If you can't make the meeting and want to become a Lion, we have a link to our, on our show page for the membership application. We also have a link to the page that lists volunteer opportunities through the Lions. You don't have to be a Lion to volunteer with them. It wouldn't be November without Turkey Bingo. You can participate in a Turkey Bingo event on November 19th at 7 p.m. in the Scandia Community Center. All proceeds support Scandia women's, the Scandia women's softball team. One more Scandia event, Rustic Roots Winery is hosting a holiday market with live jazz on November 18th from four to seven. May Township is changing the way it handles snow and ice removal. This past month, the town board entered a contract with Miller Excavating out of Stillwater to handle the snow and ice removal for township roads. Since Miller will be using their own trucks, May Township will be selling the two plow trucks it has owned for many years. Miller is familiar with municipal plowing as they handle the roads for Stillwater Township, Baytown Township, and West Lakeland Township. We're going to be talking a Washington County history with Brent Peterson in a moment, but let's touch on one other major historical note. This Sunday, November 7th, will be the last time the current 70-year-old organ at Christ Lutheran Church in Marine will be played during worship. Starting Monday, the current organ will be removed and a new organ installed, which should be in place by the end of November. You can see and hear the final performance in person or online this Sunday morning at the 8.15 or 9.30 service. Longtime CLC organist Bob Wadekin will be at the helm. His predecessor, Lorraine Torgerson, sat as the organist at Christ Lutheran from 1952 until 1999. Jim? Wow. Yeah. And Lorraine was unbelievable. And she has a movie credit to her name as well from playing the organ. Yes. In grumpier old men. That's right. They used, they actually, that's where a wedding scene took place with Sophia Loren and uh, Walter Matthau. And they uh, used, actually used her organ playing in the movie. In the movie. Yeah. That was very cool. A couple of quick library notes to pass along. Our next adult program is less than two weeks away. It's going to give us insights into why Nordic people are the happiest people in the world. You already knew that, Cam. But health and wellness coach Whitney Moore will join us to explain some of the cultural concepts that may account for the high happiness ratings that Nordic people enjoy and how we can learn from that. 
This will be a virtual program over Zoom. It's on Thursday, November 18th at 7 o'clock p.m. Sorry, Jim, I'm, I was I was taking a bite of left Souther. <laughs> I can believe it. Find the details on our events page at marinecommunitylibrary.org. Uh, Ludafisk would be more likely. What you'd be biting. True, true. Love that too. <laughs> uh, I also want to mention our art exhibits at the library. Currently, we're featuring the work of Marine resident Rick Benson. Some interesting pieces are on display at the library. Check that out next time you're there to get a book. I know this exhibit's up for only a few more weeks. And then I believe uh, the work of Mark Odegaard, our pal, is going to be up there shortly after. Also, a note on a couple children's programs. Our weekly storytime program is back every week. It takes place upstairs in the village hall where people can spread out, bring the kids and grandkids. And check out our website for details about a creative program for kids called Gifts of Nature. And that takes place tomorrow, which should be a beautiful day. This is for kids ages 5 to 12 where they can create their own land art using natural materials. And by the way, tomorrow, by that, I mean Saturday, November 6th. Uh, the kids will learn about and be inspired by the work of Andy Goldsworthy, known for his creations of temporary art in nature. It's a free event. Meet at the Village Hall to Saturday, November 6th, 10.30 to 12.30 a.m. Um, 10.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., I guess would be the really correct way to say that. So there we go. And let's open up our next poll question. We're going to be talking history. And we're just wondering, what was your favorite subject back in your school days? History, social studies is an option. English, math, science, foreign language, phi ed. There could be others I didn't list, but uh, there we go. Have a vote and tell us what you think. Gail? Phi ed. I'll just tell you right now. I know was that, was yours. that was yours. Uh, uh, well, it's time to talk history and a new way to experience Washington County's history. There's no better person to explore that with than Brent Peterson, Executive Director of the Washington County Historical Society. Brent is a graduate of Stillwater High School with a bachelor's degree from Mankato State. His background includes stints at the Minnesota Historical Society and the St. Croix County Historical Society across the river. He joined the Washington County Historical Society in the mid-90s, has written and published several books about the Stillwater area, and became executive director nearly 20 years ago. Welcome to River Radio, Brent. Well, thanks for having me, Gail. Say so the Washington County Historical Society has a recent addition, the new Washington County Heritage Center on Greeley Street in Stillwater. So can you tell me what was the impetus to start um, something like this? Well, the start for this uh, actually came 16 years ago when the organization was at a crossroads and needed to know if we we're going to grow or not. And uh, with a strategic plan in place, uh, plans were made to uh, create a modern heritage center that we could change out exhibits and actually pull some of the boxes out from the uh, attic and uh, put things on display. So tell me the process and how this dream kind of became a reality for you. Obviously, it took quite a bit of funding. It did. We, uh, we were fortunate enough to find uh, the building for sale that we are currently in on uh, South Greeley Street. It used to be the uh, company called UFE, UFE, United Fabricators and Electronics. And we were lucky because uh, that the owners, uh, prior to selling it to us, had worked out a deal with the Minnesota Department of Transportation to use the building as their headquarters for the new river crossing uh, development. 
So when we bought the building, we also received that uh, that lease, and we rented that the building out for five years to MnDOT, and with the nice uh, uh, foundation grants, we were able to pay the building off within a couple of years. Huh. Well, can you take us on a visual radio tour uh, and tell us about the various displays that you have up in the Heritage Center right now? Well, when you come in the front door, uh, right in front of you, you have our first exhibit gallery that you can walk into. And that exhibit is on a Stillwater photographer named John Runk. Now, John Runk was a professional photographer in Stillwater for 65 years, from 1899 until 1964. But he was also a collector of photography. His individual collection of photos spans 100 years from the 1860s to the 1960s from all across the St. Croix Valley. And during that time, he developed different things that he would sell, uh, such as developing uh, solutions, so forth. And he would sell those to Kodak. He was a Kodak guy. And a lot of people know about his photography. And uh, in that exhibit, you'll see blown up photos of some of his greatest works items that he developed, his cameras that have never been shown before. These cameras were donated to the Minnesota Historical Society after his death, and they've been sitting in the basement of that historical society for 57 years. We finally got them to dust them off, and now they're on display for everybody to enjoy. As you go through that exhibit, you can also watch some films of his. Uh, that The exhibit then empties into our next exhibit gallery, which is on uh, fashions from the 1860s and the 1960s. You can see a ball gown from the 1860s. You can see a stewardess outfit from the 1960s. And of course, there's the Civil War uniform as well as a Vietnam War uniform. That <laughs> exhibit will en enter into our main exhibit, which is about logging and lumbering. You know, it, Washington County. a lot of interactive in that, in that oh. logging and lumbering. Yes, there's a lot of interactive in the, that logging exhibit. And uh, it is just a wonderful tour of how the lumber industry actually worked. We talk about lumberjacks and lumbering all the time. You know, the uh, lumber, lumber era actually ended around 1914. So it's been well over 100 years. So how do you know how, how the lumber industry worked? Well, when you walk in, of course, you're in the forest. You see trees. You're under the canopy of those trees. And then you see the banked logs in the far corner. You can uh, then take a... Uh, video a uh, photo trip down the St. Croix River during the log drive and it empties into the mill and I'll mention that that we have a very large photo of the marine mill as mm -hmm. as as our uh, entrance into that mill because of course marine on St. Croix had the first uh, commercial mill in Minnesota right so yeah. and then well, we empty out uh, the mill a, it's kind of, we have an explosion of uh, wood items. What was the wood made, made with? Uh, what were things made with the wood? Houses, boxes, everything. And then there's a table there that shows you where all this wood would go. After it was milled, where did it all go? It went as far south as St. Louis. It went west to Denver and across the world, actually. So it is an exciting exhibit. With, as you mentioned, a lot of hands-on things that people can do, videos to watch. I think it is an ex exciting way to explore uh, the St. Croix Valley lumber industry.
And I can tell you're excited about it. So what's the process for you for putting up a display uh, and how often will you change these out? Uh, well, the displays, it's a, it is a process because we do need to plan them. Uh, then we need to uh, create them and then install them. So uh, the lumber uh, display is going to be there for a longer time. It's going to be there for 20 to 25 years. We oh, will, wow. we will uh, change things out over that course of time. But then the runk exhibit will be there for about two and a half years. The fashion exhibit is going to be there for about a year and a half. And then we'll uh, change them out and get some fresh uh, stories to put in. So I, I'm guessing you already have some ideas for when you change these out. We have some ideas, but we've only been open for three weeks. So we're going right. to sit on our uh, laurels here for a little bit, and then uh, we'll get back to work on what's coming in next. Well, you have one gallery that will be sponsored on a kind of a rotating basis. When you walk in, it's right to the right there. Can you tell us what the first display will be and who is curating it, basically? Right. Uh, off to the right as you come in is what we call our community corner. So we invite other uh, historical organizations throughout the county to come in for about uh, eight months to, uh, to a year and set up their own display. And right now we have the uh, Woodbury Heritage Society. Uh, that has set up in a display there that is going to be there for, I don't know, about until late next year. Oh, and what's that going to be? Well, right now it's, it's uh, got a uh, tree cookie, what uh, people call a, a large tree fell down in Woodbury uh, about 10, 15 years ago, and they made a, a cross cut of it. And it was a very old tree, so they were counting the rings. And they figured that the tree was uh, started growing back in 1737. Oh, wow. And so they counted back and they, they uh, put uh, arrows at certain years for Woodbury history, like when Woodbury was founded, when uh, it was incorporated, that type of thing. Huh. Well, a part of the building that the general public doesn't always see is the storage area. Um, which houses all kinds of uh, history. Where do the historical items come from? Well, right now our storage is still down in, in several different buildings from the mm -hmm. Warden's House Museum, our Carriage House, and even up in Scandia at our Hay Lake School and Erickson Log House, we have things in storage. The back part of the Heritage Center will be uh, storage, but that is phase two of the project. And uh, we hope to start on phase two within the next six months or so. And once that is completed, we'll have a lot of our uh, artifacts that, are, that will come out of the closets, out of the basements where they should not be, and into proper storage and will be uh, easily accessible, not only to ourselves for exhibits, but also for the public to see. So uh, tell me, um, you must get people who call you and say, hey, Brent, I've got something to donate. Um, so what's the criteria for donating? We do have a collection policy. Now we do not take things from outside of Washington County or that does not have any significance to Washington County. We also don't take things that we have multiples of. One example is we have, there was an 1881 history published on about Washington County in the St. Croix Valley. It's a great history book. We have 13 of them. We don't <laughs> need 14. So there are some things that we're not gonna take because we have uh, already have duplicates. And it is very important that the items that we have, that we do take, have a story about Washington County. So how does somebody prove the story? 
Well, it's, uh, you know, family uh, stories. You can do it with documents, photographs. I'll tell you that if we, uh, if someone offers us a wedding dress, we do want to have a photo of the bride and groom, the bride in the dress, just to prove that case. And the uh, uh, marriage certificate would be helpful. Uh, uniform, we would like to have a photo of the soldier in the uniform, if possible. So those are things that how they can prove the uh, provenance of these uh, items. I'm talking with Brent Peterson, executive director of the Washington County Historical Society. And we're talking about some items that uh, either in storage or how you can donate. But I want to know what's uh, what are a couple of the best surprises and donations that you've ever had over the years? Wow. You know, everything that we take is just incredible. It's very difficult to tell, you know, if it's a you know, exciting or not. But one of the things I can tell you is that uh, a couple years back, we received a Civil War uniform from John J. Robertson. The family uh, uh, had not only the uniform, discharge papers, a photograph of the gentleman in the uniform. And Robertson uh, came from Stillwater. He was in the uh, Company C of the 8th Minnesota Regiment. He was wounded down south. And as he got better, he was promoted to captain and he was a captain of a Negro uh, division, and they fought in the Battle of Mobile in 1865. And the uh, uniform, the photographs, the story is just fantastic. And that was a really big surprise. You don't see a Civil War uniforms come, uh, come your way very, uh, very often, and that was a great surprise. Yeah, especially with all that proof behind it as well. Yes. That's great, yeah. So most of us think that everything you catalog and store is old, but you also save items from the present for the future. So what are you saving from 2021 for viewing in 2121? Well, what do you, uh, of course, we have two boxes full of uh, COVID-related items, homemade masks. We even received some uh, empty vials of uh, uh, Pfizer uh, COVID uh, vaccine. We've got, we see some gloves from the hospital. We've had some hoods that nurses wear. So right now, a lot of the items that we're using uh, or collecting does be, uh, does go towards uh, COVID. Ah, yeah, that makes sense. So um, can you talk a little bit about the other sites that the Washington County Historical Society curates, like Hay Lake School, Erickson Log Home, Warden's House? Yes, uh, Exactly. We do have the Warden's House Museum in Stillwater. We had that's uh, been in our uh, our care now for 80 years. It opened as the second house museum in the state of Minnesota back in 1941. We just finished our season. Uh, we hope to open again in May of 2022, as well as the Hay Lake School and Erickson Log House up in Scandia. The Hay Lake School we received, uh, we purchased from the Forest Lake School District back in the 1970s. We have a lot of school groups that come through there to see how school was taught at one time. And the Erickson Log House is interesting. It's an immigrant house. It was moved to the site uh, back in the 1980s. And it is a great vision of what, what immigrants came to and what they had to live in as they uh, you know, went towards the American dream. I should also mention those three uh, properties are on the National Register of Historic Places. Oh, okay. That's good to know. So uh, last question for you, Brent, how can people support the Heritage Center or the Washington County Historical Society? Well, you can always uh, 
come to our events, come to uh, our museums. Uh, the Heritage Center is open. It's open Tuesdays through Sundays from 10 until 4. We have an $8 admission there. You can visit our website, which is www.wchsmn.org. You can become a member. You can uh, give us a donation right online, or you can uh, send it through the mail. Well, thanks. Thanks for talking with us today about uh, the new Washington County Heritage Center, Brent. Well, thank you for having me, Gail. We've been talking with Brent Peterson, Executive Director of the Washington County Historical Society. And I'd encourage all everyone listening to go check out the new Heritage Center in the old Ufi building. It's on the west side of Greeley Street in Stillwater. It's between Abbott Paint and Highway 36. Jim? All right. And uh, now to talk about our uh, poll results. And hey, we were hitting the right topics today because 29% of our respondents said history or social studies was their favorite uh, course back in school days. So we just hit history. Uh, if you go down the list a little bit, 21% said science, and we had our water discussion. And 21% said English. Hey, we talked about the library. So there we go. We really covered all the hot topics. We well, had. Uh, <laughs> I'll ahead. tell you what, if I had Brent as my uh, teacher for history, I think I'd really enjoy it. He's very enthusiastic about the new Heritage Center. It was fun seeing yeah. that with him. Right. Uh, the rest of our results uh, were 7% for math, 7% foreign language, 7% FIED, and 7% for other. And we obviously don't know what that might have been. But um, anyway, thanks, everybody, for participating in that poll. And uh, that's it for this week's show. We appreciate all of you who adjusted your schedule and listened to our live stream this morning and participated in our polls. And thanks to all of you for checking out the podcast as well. I know we said this last time, but this time we think it's for real. We'll be back to our normal Saturday morning time for our next program on November 20th at 9 a.m. Unless I have another cataract surgery. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to our guests, Kate Brauman and Brent Peterson. If you missed any of this, check out our podcast and be sure to tell your friends about it. We take you out with the suburbs. See you again on November 20th. <laughs>